This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varied Types by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 13 Bret Hart There are more than 999 excellent reasons which we could all have for admiring the work of Bret Hart. But one supreme reason stands not in a certain general superiority to them all, a reason which may be stated in three propositions united in a common conclusion. First, that he was a genuine American. Second, that he was a genuine humorist. And third, that he was not an American humorist. Bret Hart had his own peculiar humor, but it had nothing in particular to do with American humor. American humor has its own peculiar excellence, but it has nothing in particular to do with Bret Hart. American humor is purely exaggerative. Bret Hart's humor was sympathetic and analytical. In order to fully understand this, it is necessary to realize, genuinely and thoroughly, that there is such a thing as an international difference in humor. If we take the crudest joke in the world, the joke, let us say, of a man sitting down on his hat, we shall yet find that all nations would differ in their way of treating it humorously, and that if American humor treated it at all, it would be in a purely American manner. For example, there was a case of an orator in the House of Commons who, after denouncing all the public abuses he could think of, did sit down on his hat. An Irishman immediately rose, full of the whole wealth of Irish humor, and said, Should I be in order, sir, in congratulating the honorable gentleman on the fact that when he sat down on his hat, his head was not in it? Here is a glorious example of Irish humor. The bull, not unconscious, not entirely conscious, but rather an idea so absurd that even the utterer of it can hardly realize how abysmally absurd it is. But every other nation would have treated the idea in a manner slightly different. The Frenchman's humor would have been logical. He would have said, The orator denounces modern abuses and destroys to himself the top hat. Behold a good example. What the Scotchman's humor would have said, I am not so certain, but it would have probably dealt with the serious advisability of making such speeches on top of someone else's hat. But American humor on such a general theme would be the humor of exaggeration. The American humorist would say that the English politicians so often sat down on their hats that the noise of the House of Commons was one crackle of silk. He would say that when an important orator rose to speak in the House of Commons, long rows of hatters waited outside the House with notebooks to take down orders from the participants in the debate. He would say that the whole hat trade of London was disorganized by the news that a clever remark had been made by a young MP on the subject of the imports of Jamaica. In short, American humor neither unfathomably absurd like the Irish, nor transfiguringly lucid and appropriate like the French, nor sharp and sensible and full of realities of life like the Scotch, is simply the humor of imagination. It consists in piling towers 
on towers and mountains on mountains, of heaping a joke up to the stars and extending it to the end of the world. With this distinctively American humor, Bret Hart had little or nothing in common. The wild, sky-breaking humor of America has its fine qualities, but it must, in the nature of things, be deficient in two qualities, not only of supreme importance to life and letters, but of supreme importance to humor, reverence and sympathy. And these two qualities were knit into the closest texture of Bret Hart's humor. Everyone who has read and enjoyed Mark Twain as he ought to be read and enjoyed will remember a very funny and irreverent story about an organist who was asked to play appropriate music to an address upon the parable of the prodigal son, and who proceeded to play with great spirit, We'll all get blind drunk when Johnny comes marching home. The best way of distinguishing Bret Hart from the rest of American humor is to say that if Bret Hart had described that scene, it would in some subtle way have combined a sense of the absurdity of the incident with some sense of the sublimity and pathos of the theme. You would have felt that the organist's tune was funny, but not that the prodigal son was funny. But America is under a kind of despotism of humor. Everyone is afraid of humor, the meanest of human nightmares. Bret Hart had, to express the matter briefly, but more or less essentially, the power of laughing not only at things, but also with them. America has laughed at things magnificently, with gargantuan reverberations of laughter, but she has not even begun to learn the richer lesson of laughing with them. The supreme proof of the fact that Bret Hart had the instinct of reverence may be found in the fact that he was a really great parodist. This may have the appearance of being a paradox, but as in the case of many other paradoxes, it is not so important whether it is a paradox as whether it is not obviously true. Mere derision, mere contempt, never produced, nor could produce, parody. A man who simply despises Paderewski for having long hair is not necessarily fitted to give an admirable imitation of his particular touch on the piano. If a man wishes to parody Paderewski's style of execution, he must emphatically go through one process. First, he must admire it, and even reverence it. Bret Hart had a real power of imitating great authors, as in his parodies on Dumas, on Victor Hugo, on Charlotte Bronte. This means, and can only mean, that he had perceived the real beauty, the real ambition, of Dumas and Victor Hugo and Charlotte Bronte. To take an example, Bret Hart has in his imitation of Hugo a passage like this. Monsieur Madeleine was, if possible, better than Monsieur Mariel, but Monsieur Mariel was an angel. Monsieur Madeleine was a good man. I do not know whether Victor Hugo ever used this antithesis, but I am certain that he would have used it and thanked his stars if he had thought of it. This is real parody inseparable from admiration. It is the same in the parody of Dumas, which is arranged on the system of Aramis killed three of them, Porthos three, Athos three. You cannot write that kind of thing unless you have first exulted in the arithmetical ingenuity of the plots of Dumas. 
It is the same in the parody of Charlotte Bronte, which opens with a dream of a storm-beaten cliff containing jewels and pelicans. Bret Hart could not have written it unless he had really understood the triumph of the Brontes, the triumph of asserting that great mysteries lie under the surface of the most sullen life and that the most real part of a man is in his dreams. This kind of parody is forever removed from the purview of ordinary American humor. Can anyone imagine Mark Twain, that admirable author, writing even a tolerable imitation of authors so intellectually individual as Hugo or Charlotte Bronte? Mark Twain would yield to the spirit of contempt which destroys parody. All those who hate authors fail to satirize them, for they always accuse them of the wrong faults. The enemies of Thackeray call him a worldling, instead of what he was, a man too ready to believe in the goodness of the unworldly. The enemies of Meredith called his gospel too subtle, instead of what it is, a gospel, if anything, too robust. And it is this vulgar misunderstanding which we find in most parodies, which we find in all American parody, but which we never find in the parodies of Bret Hart. The skies they were ashen and sober, the streets they were dirty and drear. It was the dark month of October, in that most immemorial year. Like the skies I was perfectly sober, but my thoughts they were palsied and sere. Yes, my thoughts were decidedly queer. This could only be written by a genuine admirer of Edgar Allan Poe, who permitted himself for a moment to see the fun of the thing. Parody might indeed be defined as the worshipper's half-holiday. The same general characteristic of sympathy amounting to reverence marks Bret Hart's humor in his better-known class of works, the short stories. He does not make his characters absurd in order to make them contemptible. It might almost be said that he makes them absurd in order to make them dignified. For example, the greatest creation of Bret Hart, greater even than Colonel Starbottle, and how terrible it is to speak of anyone greater than Colonel Starbottle, is that unutterable being who goes by the name of Yuba Bill. He is, of course, the coach-driver in the Bret Hart district. Some ingenious person, whose remarks I read the other day, had compared him on this ground with old Mr. Weller. It would be difficult to find a comparison indicating a more completely futile instinct for literature. Tony Weller and Yuba Bill were both coach-drivers, and this fact establishes the resemblance just about as much as the fact that Jobson and Rob Roy and George Warrington and Pendennis were both lawyers, or that Antonio and Mr. Pickwick were both merchants, or that Sir Galahad and Sir Willoughby Patton were both knights. Tony Weller is a magnificent grotesque. He is a gargoyle, and his mouth, like the mouths of so many gargoyles, is always open. He is garrulous, exuberant, flowery, preposterously sociable. He holds that great creed of the convivial, the creed which is at the back of so much that is greatest in Dickens, the creed that eternity begins at ten o'clock at night, and that nights last forever. But Yuba Bill is a figure of a widely different character. He is not convivial. It might almost be said that he is too great ever to be sociable. 
a circle of quiescence and solitude such as that which might ring a saint or a hermit rings this majestic and profound humorist his jokes do not flow upon him like those of mr weller sparkling continual and deliberate like the play of fountain in a pleasure garden they fall suddenly and capriciously like a crash of avalanches from a great mountain tony weller has the noisy humour of london yuba bill has the silent humour of the earth one of the worst of the disadvantages of the rich and random fertility of bret hart is the fact that it is very difficult to trace or recover all the stories that he has written i have not within reach at the moment the story in which the character of yuba bill is exhibited in its most solemn grandeur but i remember that it concerned a ride on the san francisco stagecoach a difficulty arising from storm and darkness and an intelligent young man who suggested to yuba bill that a certain manner of driving the coach in a certain direction might minimize the dangers of the journey a profound silence followed the intelligent young man's suggestion and then i quote from memory yuba bill observed at last air you settin any value on that remark the young man professed not to fully comprehend him and yuba bill continued reflectively cause there's a comic paper in frisco pays for them things and i've seen worse in it to be rebuked thus is like being rebuked by the pyramids or by the starry heavens there is about yuba bill this air of pugnacious calm a stepping back to get his distance for a shattering blow which is like that of dr johnson at his best and the effect is inexpressibly increased by the background and the whole picture which bret hart paints so powerfully the stormy skies the sombre gorge the rocking and spinning coach and high above the feverish passengers the huge dark form of yuba bill a silent mountain of humour another unrecovered and possibly irrecoverable fragment about yuba bill i recall in a story about his visiting a lad who had once been his protege in the wild west and who had since become a distinguished literary man in boston yuba bill visits him and on finding him in evening dress lifts up his voice in a superb lamentation over the tragedy of finding his old friend at last a hotel waiter then vindictively pursuing the satire he calls fiercely to his young friend hi alphonse bring me a patty de foie gras damy these are the things that make us love the eminent bill he is one of those who achieve the noblest and most difficult of all the triumphs of fictitious character the triumph of giving us the impression of having a great deal more in him than appears between the two boards of the story smaller characters give us the impression that the author has told the whole truth about them greater characters give the impression that the author has given of them not the truth but merely a few hints and samples in some mysterious way we seem to feel that even if shakespeare was wrong about falstaff falstaff existed and was real that even if dickens was wrong about micawber micawber existed and was real so we feel there is in the great salt sea of yuba bill's humour as good fish as ever came out of it the fleeting jest which yuba bill throws to the coach passengers only give us the opportunity of fancying and deducing 
the vast mass of jests which Yuba Bill shares with his creator. Bret Hart had to deal with countries and communities of an almost unexampled laxity, a laxity passing the laxity of savages, the laxity of civilized men grown savage. He dealt with life which we in a venerable and historic society may find it somewhat difficult to realize. It was the life of an entirely new people, a people who, having no certain past, could have no certain future. The strangest of all the sardonic jests that history has ever played may be found in this fact, that there is a city which is of all cities the most typical of innovation and dissipation, and a certain almost splendid vulgarity, and that this city bears the name in a quaint old European language of the most perfect exponent of the simplicity and holiness of the Christian tradition. The city is called San Francisco. San Francisco, the capital of Bret Hart country, is a city typifying novelty in a manner in which it is typified by few modern localities. San Francisco has in all probability its cathedrals, but it may well be that its cathedrals are less old and less traditional than many of our hotels. If its inhabitants built a temple to the most primal and forgotten god of whose worship we can find a trace, that temple would still be a modern thing compared with many taverns in Suffolk round which there lingers a faint tradition of Mr. Pickwick. And everything in that new gold country was new, even to the individual inhabitants. Good, bad, and indifferent, heroes and dastards, they were all men from nowhere. Most of us have come across the practical problem of London landladies, the problem of the doubtful foreign gentleman in a street of respectable English people. Those who have done so can form some idea of what it would be to live in a street full of doubtful foreign gentlemen, in a parish, in a city, in a nation composed entirely of doubtful foreign gentlemen. Old California, at the time of the first rush after gold, was actually this paradox of the nation of foreigners. It was a republic of incognitos. No one knew who anyone else was, and only the more ill-mannered and uneasy even desired to know. In such a country as this, gentlemen took more trouble to conceal their gentility than thieves living in South Kensington would take to conceal their blackguardism. In such a country, everyone is an equal, because everyone is a stranger. In such a country, it is not strange if men in moral matters feel something of the irresponsibility of a dream. To plan plans which are continually miscarrying against men who are continually disappearing by the assistance of you know not whom, to crush you know not whom. This must be demoralizing life for any man. It must be beyond description demoralizing for those who have been trained in no lofty or orderly scheme of right. Small blame to them indeed if they become callous and supercilious and cynical. And the great glory and achievement of Bret Hart consists in this, that he realized that they do not become callous, supercilious and cynical, 
but that they do become sentimental and romantic and profoundly affectionate. He discovered the intense sensibility of the primitive man. To him we owe the realization of the fact that while modern barbarians of genius like Mr. Henley and in his weaker moments Mr. Rudyard Kipling delight in describing the coarseness and crude cynicism and fierce humor of the unlettered classes, the unlettered classes are in reality highly sentimental and religious, and not in the least like the creations of Mr. Henley and Mr. Kipling. Bret Hart tells the truth about the wildest, the grossest, the most rapacious of all the districts of the earth, the truth that, while it is very rare indeed in the world to find a thoroughly good man, it is rarer still, rare to the point of monstrosity, to find a man who does not either desire to be one or imagine that he is one already. End of chapter 13